We're going to read together. I'm going to read the whole thing, just from verse 14 through to verse 30 in the Bible. This is God's word. Uh, By the way, this is Joshua speaking to Israel, to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, says Joshua, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put it in place, put in place statutes and rules for them in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, This stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. This is not only the end of the book of Joshua that we're coming to this evening, but the end of our series through the book of Joshua. But in a, in a, in a greater way, in some way, it, it is an end of an era for the people of Israel. Um, through this series uh, that we've been looking at <clears throat> in Joshua, we have seen that this man Joshua was a, a great leader. He was a warrior. He was their protector and he was about to die. We've read that he was old. He's 110 years old. He has seen so much in his time. He was a dependable, godly leader. He was victorious in battle. And what he does here, and it's similar to, to other sort of Old Testament saints, you know, in the, in, the, in the Bible, is that just before he was about to die, he gathers together the next generation, the leaders the sons, whoever they may be, gathers them together and he sort of issues a final plea or exhortation to the people of Israel. And so that's what we've just been reading here. And and this passage from this evening sort of forms a bigger chunk in the Bible where 
Joshua is doing this before dying, sending this, this great challenge to the people of Israel. And the challenge is this. Are you all in? Are you all in? In other words, Joshua in this text is saying to the people of Israel, are you fully behind the projects that we have got going, that we've just started? Are you going to continue the movement after I leave? Or are you just going to snap back to how it was before? Are you in? Joshua is a great leader. But the problem is, with great leaders, all great leaders, they are able to lead so well, and people can enjoy the blessing of following a great leader, and they can enjoy the spoils of victory, of, of wars, and all that stuff. And that's great. And people can easily enjoy those external results when their leader is leading well. But the problem is this, and this is the thing that really occupies Joshua until his dying day. Maybe the people of Israel are just enjoying the external results without internal heart change. And we'll only see when the leader is gone how the people really are, what the people really think internally. What is the condition of their hearts and their minds? They'll only know that after Joshua, the great leader, passes away. And so Joshua brings Israel, the people of Israel, <clears throat> to a sort of almost like a climax, a choice that has to be made. The people, as we've been seeing over the last few months, as we've been going through it, they have taken possession of the land. God has, God has blessed them beyond anything that they could have imagined. The land that was formerly occupied by all of these pagan nations has been cleared bit by bit. The people of Israel have won victory after victory. They should not have won on paper, and yet because God was fighting for them, because he was blessing them, because he was honoring the promises he made to them, they entered the promised land and took up residence there. But the question at the end of this series and this book is this. Are their hearts fully given over to God? Or in other words, as we've seen, are the people all in? Are they all in? Why, why is this important? Why, why does Joshua devote this big challenge, this massive challenge, of all the things he could have said, right? You only get to utter your last words once. Why did he reserve his last, most important, crucial words for this question? Are you in? Because he could have, he could have led Israel to praise God and, and he could have used his last words to say, hey everybody, look at what God has done. Isn't that great? And then he ends there on a high. But he doesn't. He issues a challenge. Why is that? Well, as we'll see in a few moments as we go through, the reason why Joshua uses his last words to issue this challenge is because he realizes that there is always a risk of drift. There's always a threat of wander away from the original calling, the original purposes, you know, the, the original mission. He realizes there is always a risk. How can this happen? Maybe we have all done this in some form or other in our lives. People do it. Churches do it. They drift away. They wander away. 
Maybe, and we'll think in terms of church and, and spirituality, maybe after a period of growth, after a period of excitement, after a period of great gains for the kingdom of God, of investing time and money and effort, a group of people, a Christian, a church, has seen great blessing, has seen great fruit. Life has been going well. They're on a high. They've experienced amazing spiritual things. But that is the time when they are at greatest risk of drift. That's the time when people, Christians and churches, are at greatest risk of wandering away. Especially after an intense time of ministry, for example, people may say to themselves, I've done my time. I've served and been faithful. And now it's time for me to sit back, to take my foot off the gas, to take a well-earned break. I've had my passionate period in my Christian faith and now I'm just going to back off. Now I'm just going to coast. I'm going to rest up and chill out. Someone else behind me can easily take up the slack. That's what we can think. And let me just be clear before we go on any further. Rest is good. Rest is a gift. Rest is needful. We cannot go through life and work and ministry operating at 100% in terms of energy. Seasons of life must be respected. But what I'm talking about here, the issue that Joshua is getting at, is the problem of drift. We go beyond God's good gift of rest and we start to get lazy. We start to wander away from the original mission. We become spiritually flabby. We might lean on our earlier works, the earlier phase in our lives of, of, of fruit and success and Christian enthusiasm. And before we know it, we wander away. We take a back seat. Do you think this is a potential problem for us at Foundation Church? You bet. As a church plant, perhaps in some ways more acutely than other types of churches, there's always a threat of wandering off, off course, of backing off, of becoming complacent, step by step. Do you think this is a problem for us as individual believers in Jesus? You bet. I've, I've served in a variety of church traditions and contexts in my, in my time so far. And in different traditions and contexts and types of churches and denominations, I see this time and again. So it doesn't really matter what kind of church you've attended or what kind of Christian you are. This risk of drifting away seems to be common in the Christian church. People backing off. Whole churches, in fact, can be consumed by this spirit, if you like, of complacency. No longer are they passionate about the things of God. They are distracted by something other than Jesus. And it seems that Joshua saw this, and so he devoted his final words to this issue. Are you all in? What exactly was it, do you think, that Joshua saw in the people that led him to hammer home this question? To ask the question, in fact, over and over again in various ways, are you all in? I don't know if you picked it up as we went through the text, 
but twice, twice in this fairly short passage, it seems to be that Israel, for all the good things, for all the fruit and the blessings that they have just experienced within the last, say, 25 years, it seems to be that they still had hold of the pagan idols, of the gods from many years ago. Look down at verse 14, you'll see what I mean. He says uh, right at the top of your, your sheet, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And in verse 23, it also says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Can you believe that? I mean, after all these people have been through, crossing the, the River Jordan, entering into the Promised Land, you know, the, remember the walls of Jericho come down after marching around it for seven days, taking on one king, then another king, then five kings, then ten kings, then 30 of them. Victory after victory. They've seen God come through for them every time. They've experienced salvation. They've experienced victory. They have seen bare-faced and undeniable expressions of God's power right in front of them. They've seen his love. They've seen his faithfulness. They've experienced his promises coming true. They have seen him live out effectively the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, the great leader Joshua says to the people, put away your foreign gods that are among you. It's just crazy that they would have these little things lurking all this time, throughout this entire experience, this almost like this, this high point in the experience of the people of Israel, the golden years, all this time, despite all that, lurking, hiding in the shadows, out of sight, were these foreign gods. Out of sight, but apparently not out of mind. After all, there they were, influencing these little gods, if you like, waiting for Israel to take her foot off the gas, waiting for her to take her eyes off of Yahweh, her God, waiting for the doubt to set in, waiting for the leadership void to be created by Joshua's death. And then, when the moment came, out of the closet they shall be produced, out of the shadows of people's hearts and cupboards, come these little idols. And this is Joshua's concern. This is what he saw. Specifically, he says in verse 14, put away your gods that were, uh, sorry, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Beyond the river, the river, when it's capital R, that refers to the river Euphrates. Still, very much a river today. You can go to it. Abraham, the great father of the people of Israel, lived beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates. And before God called him, he used to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. He was a pagan. And God is saying, don't go back to those ancient gods of your fathers. Or, or, or the gods that your fathers served in Egypt when you were enslaved there for hundreds of years. Don't go back to those gods either. Put them in the bin. Get rid of your ancestral gods. But do you know, it wasn't just the ancient traditions that brought a threat to the people of Israel. You can see down in verse 15, second half, it says, uh, 
you know, put, put away the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, all the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. The gods of today, the gods of your contemporary society. Not only is it the ancient gods that your fathers worship, but the gods of the nations that you have displaced. They're still lurking in your community, says Joshua, and that's why he issues this question, are you all in? We think to ourselves, this side of history in the 21st century, we're, we're advanced in the contemporary church. But are we completely immune to the issues that Joshua gave his dying breath to address? Is this all just ancient deities and funny little wooden idols that we just don't think about or talk about in today's modern society? Of course not. In fact, right here in this final challenge, there is a, there is a word for us today in the contemporary 21st century church. Because we can be equally influenced by the traditions of old. Maybe not gods beyond the river or gods from Egypt. But we can be influenced as God's people by historic idols, if you like. Let me give you some examples, just to be general here. Maybe if you have come to Christianity or, or, or come to faith and, 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 and you, you came to faith from a non-Christian background or a non-Christian upbringing, there may be previous traditions, maybe previous beliefs still hold sway and influence in your life. And those influences are powerful and strong and may continue to influence you as you try to live as a Christian. Even if you were reared in the church, we can still be susceptible to this type of traditional ancestral gods, if you like. In fact, I've noticed in my own time the influence and impact of unchecked traditions of in inherited faith. You know, the religion of our fathers, these assumptions that, that, that we just buy into if we've come from a Christian background, these traditions that we just accept without thinking about, formulations of the faith which are just unhelpful at best or distracting and divisive at worst. We can hold to these traditions of our fathers which can freeze a church, can grip and strangle the life out of the mission of a church. Not only, by the way, um, can we today in the 21st century church be influenced by these ancient gods and traditions of our fathers, if you like, but also we can be equally influenced by the contemporary gods of our society, just like Israel was influenced by the gods of the Amorites among whom they lived. The contemporary gods of our society have been described as these, three of them, the idols of sex, money, and power. They are so prevalent in today's society. Everybody wants them. They are powerful driving forces among us. Someone has summarized it like this. It's all about looking good, feeling good, or having the goods. And I would add to the mix of that too, comfort. 
The idol of comfort. This is a huge idol in modern day churches. Whether it's looking good, feeling good, having the goods, or just being good and comfortable, these gods are always maintaining a presence within our contemporary modern churches, always threatening. They grip you, they drive you, they will take over the direction of your life. Rather than using sex, money, and power as good gifts to grow the kingdom of God, they become ends in themselves. They become the thing that we exist for. And many a Christian and many a church have been shipwrecked by allowing these to come in and influence and wander. And so Joshua's final word to Israel is still as fresh for us today as it was for them. The challenge that he gives us this evening is still as real and contemporary as it gets. And so the question is, as we finish out this series, are you all in? And just as we come to then this important conclusion that Joshua makes, just as with Israel, we as a church must continue to choose to follow after God. In fact, the Christian faith itself can be understood in this way, a continual choosing to follow after God, to be all in, to be all in at every turn of life, every juncture every new season of life. In fact, every day, the Christian life can be understood as being continually choosing to go after God. That's why we must ask ourselves continually, as a church and as individuals, am I all in? Are we all in? Joshua describes what exactly this looks like, to be all in. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Fearing the Lord, fear, in this context, is about reverence, it's about awe, it's about living in joyful respect and worship of God, serving Him, giving yourself for Him. And we're to do that in sincerity, he says. That is in integrity. That's what being all in looks like. Does your outside actions and words match up with your inside heart and mind. That's what it is to serve God in sincerity. We're to do it with faithfulness, unwavering. Verse 23 shows us that all in also means inclining our hearts to God, tipping towards him at every stage. That's what all in looks like. But as you can see from the text as we read it through, <clears throat> deciding to go all in to follow God is not something that you do lightly. In verse 19, it's just a, kind of odd the first time you read it, but Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, he will not forgive your transgressions and sins. He will not forgive your rebellion. This is not, by the way, saying that God never forgives. But he is trying to make sure that when Israel come to figure out are they all in for God, that they know what they're up against. They know the requirements that God has for his people because he says in verse 20, if you forsake God and serve the foreign gods, then God will turn from you and it will do harm to you and he will consume you. 
So before you make a choice to be all in for God, you have to know what you're dealing with. There's two choices that we make as Christians, right? There's the choice that we make that first time we decide uh, to, to come to Jesus, to turn our hearts around to him, to, to be converted, to become a Christ follower, whatever term you want to use. That's the first choice that we make often as a Christian, to become one. And when we come to Jesus for the first time, like Israel, it's important that we know the cost. It's important that we know that it's going to be hard. Unfortunately, some churches and some Christians offer what we can just describe as a half-baked gospel. Half-baked gospel message. They only tell half the story. They only tell the the good bits, if you like, the, the positive bits. But they don't tell people that it's hard work following Jesus. They don't tell people it's a cost to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes it himself very clear in Mark 8. He says this, If anyone would come after me and follow me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever must lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. If you make your first choice to follow Jesus and become a Christian, you've got to know, it's hard. You've got to lose your life to gain life. You've got to take up your cross, says Jesus. And you've got to wander around your life with it around your neck. Yes, we receive life. Yes, we receive a great hope that we're just singing about for the future. But first, you must die to yourself. You give up the rights of your life and you say to Jesus, I want you to be the captain of my ship. I want you to tell me which direction to go in. And that's hard. And that causes many people to turn away from Jesus because he takes them in a direction that they wouldn't naturally want to go. Turning to Christ means you develop new enemies. People who were formerly your friends and even your family will turn against you. Oh yes, friends, it is worth it. It is so worth it. But following Jesus comes at a cost. Being all in comes at a cost. That's the first choice we make as a Christian. But there's a second choice or choices that we must continually make, as we're saying this at the start, as believers in Jesus, just like Israel. We have to choose at every step, every phase of life, am I all in? Or are you going to choose to drift away? Right now, as a new church plant, for example, in this particular context, we have to ask ourselves, as a group of people, are we all in? Insofar as are we following God faithfully and sincerely? As a church plant, are we all in? And maybe when we change schools or maybe when we leave school and go to university, we have to ask ourselves, am I all in? Or am I going to drift away from Jesus? And maybe if we go from being single to dating and go from dating to being married, we have to ask ourselves, am I all in for Jesus? Or am I going to be consumed by this new relationship? And when we go from being married to having children, we have to ask ourselves again, 
Am I all in? Or am I obsessed by my family? And when we go from education to getting that career that we've been looking for, we have to ask ourselves, am I all in? Or am I being obsessed with the love of money and power more than the love of God? And even as we grow older, as we go from being a child to a a teenager, as we turn 16, as we turn 18, as we go into 30s and our 40s and our 50s, as we retire at each step, we must ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, am I all in? Joshua, with his dying breath, lays this all out before Israel. And he is clear in his own mind which option he is going to take. Do do, do you see also, by the way, this is sort of a side issue, but do you note that he's almost dead? But he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He has such confidence that those in his household, those in his family, have so experienced and known and trusted in God that they will continue to serve and honour God. He knows in his heart which way they're going to go. As goes the leader, so goes the people. As goes the head, so goes the body. And that's why he is resolute. He's seen God at work. He's experienced his salvation. He's heard God's call on his life. He's spoken with God face to face. That's it. That's Joshua. He's going after God and all his family with him. But Israel, the congregation, they had a choice. Because in a few days or months from now, they are no longer going to be able to hide under the wings of Joshua. They have to decide personally and corporately Am I all in? And Joshua says to the people, you've got to choose now because it won't be long before I'm dead. Don't delay this. Are you all in? For us today, this side of the cross, we have a a greater reason to choose to be all in for Jesus. We have one who is greater than Joshua. We have a great leader who gave himself for the cause of God, who laid down his life for his people. We have a leader who took on our greatest enemies and beat them completely in his body on the cross. Whereas the great leader Joshua eventually lost his powers and they put him in the ground. Jesus, our great leader, was put in the ground Yet because of his great power, he came back to life again. Joshua's reign eventually came to an end, and that was it. But Jesus, our leader, our warrior, his reign goes on forever. And as we were reading at our prayers, he sends gifts, he sends his spirit to incline our hearts to God to give us a new heart, to make us follow after God. In Jesus, we have complete assurance that our sins are forgiven because he perfectly died in our place. We have a greater reason to be all in for God today 
than they ever did. So what about you? As we close out this, this book and this series, as you hear these words spoken to Israel and spoken through the Spirit to us tonight, let's wrestle with this question together, all of us. Am I all in for God? I'm not saying, were you all in for God at some former phase in your life, but am I in for God, all in for God now? Or has something else taken that top place that occupies more thoughts, that has a bigger space in your heart and a bigger claim on your wallet than God? This is how and this is why we choose to live for God when we look up at Jesus, our great leader, and we see what he did. And as we continue to look at Jesus, as we continue to hear him through hearing the gospel word every time we meet and through living in gospel community where we get together and talk and enjoy and apply and press in the gospel of Jesus, when we do that, we see that the gods of ancient, ancient tradition and the, the gods of contemporary society that we live in when we look at Jesus and gaze on him, we realize that these gods are powerless, they're pitiful, and they're pointless. They offer loads of promises, and yet they fail to deliver. But Jesus, who is the true and greater Joshua, he himself is our treasure. So when you look at him, and you see what he's done for you. Are you all in? Let's pray. Father God, we want to be open to your leading right now, to your word. We want to be open to your challenge through the scriptures we want to give ourselves to thinking seriously about this and so it's our prayer it's my prayer that by your spirit father god you would help us to truly search our hearts and minds and ask ourselves are we all in father god i thank you that if we conclude on honest reflection that we're not all in I thank you that because of your love and your care for us that you will restore Jesus to the highest place in our hearts and minds and within our church. So Father, forgive us if we have wandered or drifted away. Restore that which is broken and lost. And Father, for those of us who say, yes, I am all in for Jesus, my prayer, Lord, is that you would take that passion, that sincerity, that faithfulness, and you would simply multiply it up. Give us more, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. And Father God, as we look upon Jesus, 
as we come to the communion table and as we come to sing to him would you stir our hearts would you realign our mission as individuals and as a church that we may burn even brighter for the glory and the fame of Jesus for it's in his name we pray and for his glory Amen